So we are in the third week of Advent, and we are looking at a series we call BCAD, What Changed? What Changed Because Jesus Came. We talked about humility and forgiveness changed. We talked about uh, how the world sees and values children and women and the other uh, because Jesus came. Today I'm tackling a topic, uh, probably scary, I shouldn't probably do it, uh, science. And I don't want to actually say Jesus changed science. I want to say Jesus reaffirmed science. So first question, uh, is the Bible compatible with science? Yes. Uh, Second question, uh, can a preacher talk about science without appearing mm, stupid? Uh, So we shall see. Uh, We shall see. And I want to... um, say, I have two strikes against me as I head into a, a topic of science and the Bible. Number one, the church has not always been particularly science-friendly. So some of you know Galileo, uh, you know, one of our uh, great uh, scientists of the past. In 1633, the Inquisition of the church um, forced Galileo uh, to recant his theory theory that uh, the earth revolved around the sun. And uh, at the risk of torture, he did. He recanted. He said, okay, uh, sun goes around the earth. Uh, But it says that as he left the courtroom, he muttered under his breath, all the same it moves. So uh, whatever that meant, but uh, you know, uh, he recanted. But here's the thing. It wasn't until 1992 that the Vatican admitted that Galileo was right. 1992, we had men go to the moon in the 60s, right? I mean, we kind of knew how things worked long before 1992. That's when the church caught up. So uh, there you go. And um, uh, it doesn't mean that the church and science have now blended so smoothly, more like continue to crash into each other. You know that there is a Noah's Ark Creation Science Amusement Park in Kentucky, life-size Noah's Ark, Uh, and it has dinosaurs on it because that's the way the creation scientists put together science, and uh, so that happened uh, in Kentucky, and so it's stories like these that lead some people to conclude that Jesus and science don't mingle. After all, Jesus' own story begins with an impossible thing right? Virgin birth. So uh, the second strike against me, though, is that uh, I don't really know, I don't know science good. Uh, I don't don't have such a grasp on science. In fact, uh, what I know about science could be put into a one-ounce thimble with a lot of room left over. Uh, I'd say I have about two one-hundredths of an ounce of science in me. Uh, Remember that? Two one-hundredths, that'll come back in a minute. Um, but I love learning about science, and I want to recommend a book. I really have enjoyed this book. I've read it a couple times. It's called The Island of Knowledge, and it is uh, a history of science. And it's this fabulous uh, explanation of how we believed, believed declared uh, certain things all the way through history. And here's the important thing to remember When scientists said, this is the way it is, everyone believed it. They they knew this was true. 
until the next thing came along and disproved that. And that's what he shows over and over again, uh, that, uh, that he calls it the island of knowledge, which means there, that we know this much. But by definition, what we know, this island, has a, a shoreline around it, which is the edge at which we don't know what else is out there. And as our knowledge grows, what else grows? The edge. So that no matter how much we learn, there's always more we don't know. The more we know, the more we don't know. And I love that coming from a scientist. Um, and uh, so, for instance, um, I don't know if you've heard of the celestial spheres. That's been a term I was aware of, but when I read the book, I realized, oh, no, that's actually what science believed. Copernicus, back uh, as, when Columbus was sailing, uh, science believed that the, um, that the stationary stars that we see and the planets are, were embedded on a sphere made out of something, and uh, that was science uh, back then until uh, the 1600s when Kepler uh, discovered something new and we began to move towards gravity. Here's what we need to know. Before Kepler, they believed, understood that the stars were embedded on a sphere the same way we know gravity is what does it. They were wrong. That should give us some humility when it comes to being confident in gravity. You know, things are changing all the time. Every month, brand new pieces of knowledge come that say, and the headline is always, new black hole uh, says that all we know about the universe is wrong. You know, it's always, it's always something new, huge that's happening. Um, Copernicus knew there were crystal spheres. And uh, that... And that was part of our knowledge until the island got bigger and discovered gravity. So what will we discover tomorrow? Interesting. Uh, given all of that, I think there's not only room for science in the story of Jesus. I think Jesus' story demands science, that we take it seriously. So right at the beginning, I'm going to say that Jesus didn't change science the way he changed human, the value of human beings, but... He reaffirmed what the Bible has already said about science, uh, that it's worthwhile and even vital to study it. So to begin with, the beginning of the entire Bible begins in the beginning of everything. Everything that exists starts in Genesis 1-1, and what exists is the realm of science. So the Bible begins with science. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, I, so, so I think there's, I think it's saying, hey, guys, science, everything. God's involved with everything that we see and know. And I think we could rewrite this phrase uh, this way. In the beginning, E equals MC squared. That, now, I want to know how many of you know what E equals MC squared means. I, yeah, one. Thank you, Dean. So, two, three, four. I did not know. I mean, I know it. I say E equals MC squared. What's M? What's C? And what's C squared? I, I got energy. I got that one. E. Equal, e is energy. So, here is what it is. Energy is equal to the mass of anything 
multiplied by the speed of light squared. Does anybody know what the speed of light is? 186,000 miles per second squared times itself. 34 billion. 34 billion. Um, So if we take the smallest thing we could possibly imagine and multiply it by 34 billion, you get a lot. And there's a lot of energy in it. So for instance, I have a sea salt caramel chocolate. All right? Scrape off one sea salt crystal. Sea salt crystal right there. If you multiply that by 34 billion you get 34 bathtubs filled of salt. It's a lot of salt. And that's just matter. That's not energy yet. Um, And the thing is, humans can't make this equation work. We understand it. I mean, we understand that this is what the equation is. We can't make it happen. We can't take energy and make it into matter. You know what we can do, unfortunately? Take matter and turn it into energy. The, the equation works both directions. That's how equations work. I, I knew that from math. So um, we are able to take matter and turn it into energy. So, uh, and, and I'm a bit out on a limb because it's only what I read, but here we go. There were 141 pounds of enriched uranium in the bomb that dropped on Hiroshima. 141 pounds of uranium. Of that... Only about four ounces underwent nuclear fission, so did whatever it is that it does. Four ounces, four ounces. And two one-hundredths of an ounce exploded. And that was the bomb. Two one-hundredths of an ounce. So, the, so it's unbelievable how much energy is in matter. The, the thing is, God is and has infinite energy, and he can read the equation left to right. He can make things happen. So in the beginning, he created. He used that energy, took a little bit of energy, created matter out of it. Um, Christians need to take science seriously because God chose to include science in the making of all things at the very starting point of his message to human beings. Um, did the people, when they were writing it and reading it, understand any of it? No. Who's he writing it to? I think us. He knew we were going to figure it out. So how did Jesus elevate science? By the time a, Paul was writing to the Colossians, and we keep, right, I keep coming back to Colossians. Here's another reason why. Colossians 1.17. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Bible says it's Jesus that holds everything together. So Jesus says, you better pay attention to science because I'm it. I am science. I'm, I'm what holds it all together. Um, and if Jesus holds, uh, knows, understands how to hold all things together, and therefore he knows how this equation works in both directions, how difficult would it be for Jesus to say, turn water into wine? Not that hard. He knows the equation, right? To turn fish and loaves and multiply it, not that hard. Uh, to, to change a withered hand and repair it, not that hard. All the miracles that we see walking on water, um, not that hard. 
So even if I only understand a little bit of this, it's exciting that science is not opposed to God. Science is the study of what is, and God is. And therefore, science includes the study of God. And, according to Romans, understanding science helps us understand God. That's our second point. Understanding science helps us understand God. Hold on to this picture of the rose for a minute. And then let's go on to the text. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly understood by seeing what has been made. So what does this mean? Well, what can we learn from a rose? That's the question. I love this text because it says, if you don't know what God is like, look at what he's made. God is like what he made. So a rose, what do we learn from that? Well, don't we often say, why won't God just answer my question? Why won't God just solve my problem? Why won't God just take my relatives coming on Christmas and remove their dysfunction before they get here? Why can't he just do it? Look at the rose. Can you peel back the bud and force it to bloom? No. That's how God is. You can water it. You can nurture it. You can send them tracks on therapy. But, but you can't force it. Dag, nab it. Well, God, you know what? That's how God is. We can see it in nature. That's his nature. Um, so... Uh, what, what about God's patience? What do we learn about God's patience? Second um, Peter says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friend. With the Lord, the day is like a thousand years, and the thousand years is as a day. That's the rose. Just got to wait. If you have your prize rose you're trying to take to the fair, you can go out and look at it every single day, but don't you dare try to open it. Just got to wait for it to bloom. So what about nature helps us understand why, God, why it, uh, it seems like God treats bad people the same way he treats good people? I mean, if God loves us and he doesn't want bad things to happen, why, why does he seem to treat bad people the same way as good people? Look at rain. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's everywhere. It falls on everything. Well, do we wish it wasn't that way? Maybe, but that's the way it is. That's how God is. He's not going to send the lightning bolt that we wish that he would. So what uh, if God is all-powerful, why can't we seem to access it? Why can't we just pray for power? Why can't we just tell God to do something? We've got a lot of good things we wish we could tell God to do. Just take a look at electricity. You, when, when it comes to electricity, two things. One, you got to trust that it's there. You, you know when, when they shut out, when they turned off the lights, the power in Simi Valley for the fires? Nobody went and flipped on the switch. Why? It's not there. We know it. Why, why flip the switch? So first you have to believe that there's power there, and second you have to have the right access point. You have to, it, isn't just, it isn't just whatever we decide how we want to access power. There's ways to access God's power. We learn that from electricity. So guess what? God's not a genie. We don't get to rub a lamp. We don't get to have three wishes. We don't get to tell God what to do. But there are ways to access God and his power. So the Bible began with science. 
and science can help us understand God, science might also give us an idea of where God is. Maybe, number three, God is in the empty space. Now, I think we learn this from nature ourselves, too. So you take a look at this picture. Oh, my gosh, it's so empty. And doesn't it almost make you... Just having empty space makes us kind of relax. We like it. Well, why? Well, I think maybe partly because God's in it. But we're going to take a look at this. It says the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and here it is again, in him all things hold together. All things hold together. I get very excited when I read that verse in light of a science article I read back in 2012. And I'll get to the article in a minute, but let me, let me, let me set you up for it. So <clears throat> here's what the article said, and I think relates to the text. So 94% of the universe is empty space. I'm not making this up. That's what science tells us. And, and 6% is stuff. 6% is atoms. 6%. That means that all the galaxies, all the planets, all the stars, all of us, everything is 6%. Everything else is empty space. All right? Now it's going to get confusing here for a minute. So how much of... The universe is empty space, 94%. How much is anything? 6%. Here's the mind-boggling piece of it. Of the part that is something, the 6%, of it is empty space. Of the stuff that's actually something, 99.99% of it is also empty space. So, for example, if, the, if a hydrogen atom, a hydrogen atom, just one atom, was the size of Earth, this on the left is Stonebridge's footprint, uh, you know, from front to back. That's how much matter is in the hydrogen atom. That's all the, that's all the firm material in an atom the size of Earth. The rest is empty space. Look at it a different way. If this, a golf ball, were the matter, the material, in an atom, the atom would be as big, the circle around, the sphere around the atom would be from Sycamore to Cooner and up into the mountains on both sides. That's how big an atom would be if that was the matter in it. And all the rest is empty space. That means, if you do the math, that 99% of everything is nothing at all. 1% of everything is anything. The rest is nothing. Empty space. And I loved it. A guy last night at, at the, at, in the service, he came out after, he says, Neil, if, if there's so much empty space, why does my golf ball keep hitting trees? I said, that's gravity. So, 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 let, so I'm going to walk us through it again. Um, 94% uh, of the universe is empty space. 
6% of the universe is made up of atoms, and 99% of the 6% is empty space. Uh, so how much is actually anything? So it, it bears repeating. Scientists tell us that 94% of everything that exists is actually nothing. In the entire universe, only 6% of everything is anything. That rest is nothing. Uh, so all you have to uh, think about is that there's a whole lot of nothing going on. 99% of everything is nothing. Less than 1% of everything is anything at all. That's clear as mud. So um, here's where God and the science article come in. Uh, so the San Diego Union Tri Tribune in 2012 said this, most of the universe is space containing no recognizable matter. That's what we've been talking about, right? Uh, and then it says, yet numerous astronomical studies indicate that something is out there, something unseen that exerts force and influence on a cosmic and quantum scale, binding both atoms and galaxies together. Wow! Something, something in the nothing is the most important thing there is. Something in the nothing holds everything together. Wow. Uh, and that's in 2012. So since then, they've been studying. Anybody know what we call what's the nothing, the something in the nothing? Dark matter. That's right. Guess what? That doesn't mean anything. They don't know what dark matter is. It's a placeholder. It's a placeholder. And yesterday, I mean, the day before yesterday, I was reading an article. This, was, this came out the day before yesterday, published. Dark matter is the unidentified mass, unidentified, means we don't know what it is, unidentified mass that appears to be the scaffolding of the universe. It's exactly what the person said in 2012. Something in the nothing holds everything together. Something unseen, so we're going to put it up on screen. Something unseen binding both atoms and galaxies together. If that sounds familiar, it's because Colossians 1.17 says this. Next screen. Jesus himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That was written before they had telescopes. That was written before anybody knew anything. And the Bible says it's Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is dark matter. Um, but um, scientists have weighed the universe. I, I don't know where the scale is. I don't know how they did that. Um, but the 6%, the atoms, everything, it doesn't weigh enough. There has to be something in the dark matter that weighs in the, in the nothing. Um, so I don't suggest that God has weight, but I would say that there is plenty of room for God to be present in the empty space. And I find that comforting. Figuratively, we have a, a lot of empty space in our lives. There, there, we have loneliness. We have, we have loss from people that have gone, and we feel empty. And what we learn from the universe is that God is in the empty space. Uh, sometimes we can get into actual empty space. And, you know, so that was that picture that we showed. And, and it's like this breath, breath of fresh air. Many of us have experienced God in those empty places. And maybe God is closer or more available to us in those spaces. 
Something else um, makes more sense to me when I understand some of the science of atoms and empty space and universe. And this is, I love this too, number four. The kingdom of heaven really is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you know, Jesus' first sermon was in Matthew 4. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't say a lot about the kingdom of heaven. I'd love to do a series on the kingdom of heaven. Because he goes on and says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. Uh, this, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near us. And you know this one. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Well, when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near, he meant it. It's in the 99%. The 99% is as real as the 6%, the 1% that we can see. And his kingdom is in all the rest of it. It's all around us. We breathe it in. So how has Jesus reaffirmed science? First, the Bible acknowledges and has affirmed science in its first verses. And then the New Testament expands on that. It acknowledges um, that an acknowledgement to identify Jesus as the power that holds the universe together. Science's best understanding to date is that some kind of power is holding the universe together. Some kind of power is holding the universe together. Wow. I'd say those two, those two pieces of science and faith come pretty close together. So I'm not saying that science confirms the Bible, and here is something I really don't want to say, that, that science must conform to the Bible, because then you get arcs with dinosaurs on them. The Bible is not a science textbook, but, I, um, but what I do take comfort in is that we have experiences like this. Now, I, I just found this photo and said, oh, this, this communicates to us, doesn't it? You can feel it. There's something about it that we resonate with. Science uh, does not eliminate God from this picture. Now, listen, science can observe that the sun is not actually setting. The earth is turning. Science can tell us that the sky is not really blue, that it is about the spectrum of light that we can see. Uh, it's the waves of light working. Science can tell us that the sunbeam on the water is nothing but a reflection. But science cannot tell us why it's beautiful. Why we feel transformed when we experience it. Why people fly all over the world to have experiences like this. And it's not because it's empty space. It's not because there's nothing there. It's because there's something in the nothing. We can observe all those things with our eyes and our scientific instruments, but science cannot define or measure or see the 99.999% that's also there. Isn't it possible that something in the human being is able to measure and see and experience that which makes up 99% of the universe. We understand that science cannot determine if we have a, a soul or a spirit. But couldn't that be a weakness of science and not a weakness of the soul? So um, 
you got to remember the island of knowledge. You remember, we knew it was spheres that held the stars up until the island expanded to reach to gravity. Oh, it's gravity now. What if we just haven't gotten far enough to realize their soul? And maybe the, science, the, the, the island of knowledge will never be able to understand that their soul. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Gravity still worked, even when they believed in the spheres, right? So, as we head towards Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, we don't have to explain how a virgin conceived. We don't have to identify which star led the wise men. We don't have to explain how, being of angel- how beings of angelic nature appeared to shepherds. All the physical elements like that are part of the 6%. And I think all of it is pointing to the 99 <clears throat> I'll go out on a limb and say that the truth is all of that points to the 99% we can't see, but we can believe. The part that holds everything together. I think that's why the church wisely for many centuries has had Advent that said, prepare your hearts for Christmas. We've got, we're doing good on preparing our houses and our trees and our lights and our food and our tr- presents Amazon is great at helping us with that. But it can't help us prepare our hearts. And our hearts are being prepared for the 99% of Christmas that the rest can't show us. Christmas Eve is our opportunity to invite people to explore the bigger world, the 99% of reality that we don't see. Baby Jesus, shepherds, wise men, angels, and a star over a stable are entry points doorways into the bigger and here's what i know about you and about me we have friends who are stuck in the six percent they don't know if they don't know what's coming in the world they the discouragement the loneliness the hurt the the worry the fear is part of the six percent and on christmas eve we show what's in the rest of it so my next step one little thing is think of someone who could use some hope of the unseen and the what might be and invite them to join you on Christmas Eve. We're not going to smack people around. We're not going to... All we're going to do is point to the one who came, the one who demonstrates that there's more in this world than what we can see.